Now the Feast of Unleavened Bread drew near, which is called the Passover. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to put him to death, for they feared the people. Then Satan entered into Judas called Iscariot, who was one of the number of the twelve. He went away and conferred with the chief priests and officers how he might betray him to them. And they were glad and agreed to give him money. So he consented and sought an opportunity to betray him to them in the absence of a crowd. Then came the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. So Jesus sent Peter and John, saying, Go and prepare the Passover for us, that we may eat it. They said to him, Where would you have us prepare it? He said to them, Behold, when you have entered the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him into the house that he enters, and tell the master of the house. The teacher says to you, where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished. Prepare it there. And they went and found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. When the hour came, he reclined at table, and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this, and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you, that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise the cup, after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is a new covenant in my blood. But behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. For the Son of Man goes at it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. And they began to question one another, which of them could it be who was going to do this? A dispute also arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. And he said to them, The kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors. But not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest, and the leader as one who serves. For who is the greater, one who reclines at table, or one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at table? But I among, among you as the one who serves. You are those who have stayed with me in my trials, and I signed to you, as my father assigned to me a kingdom, that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom, and sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prepared for you that your faith may not fail.
And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Peter said to him, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the cock will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. And he said to them, When I sent you out with no money bag or knapsack or sandals, did you lack anything? They said, Nothing. He said to them, But now, let the one who has a money bag take it, and likewise a knapsack. And let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. For I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled in me. And he was numbered with the transgressors. For what is written about me has its fulfilment. And they said, Look, Lord, here are two swords. And he said to them, It is enough. Our Father in heaven, we do pray as we begin to prepare our hearts for Easter, we pray very much that you would um, open our eyes by your Spirit and open our hearts by your Spirit, that we might understand your word and so appreciate the Lord Jesus and his death. We pray that whether we're coming to Easter uh, to understand it for the first time or uh, for the hundredth time. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, as I mentioned earlier in the notices, we are starting this new um, series, uh, focusing our thoughts on Easter. We're still in Luke's Gospel, but we've kind of hit the skip button from chapter 4 all the way to chapter 22. Um, We'll come back to to earlier bits of Luke um, in the future, don't worry. But but we thought it would be good to um, uh, prepare our way for Easter. Um, Easter is coming. I know in lockdown it's kind of quite hard to know what day of the week it is, let alone what season of the year. Um, But we are heading that way, um, and plans are afoot. Um, as I mentioned, we're, we're, we're planning for how we're going to unlock church, um, uh, though still waiting for the last bits of um, information uh, in terms of guidelines. But actually, making plans for Easter is where our passage starts. We're just going to dive straight in, because that's the, the, what's going on uh, in this chapter, making plans for Easter. In fact, in the first 13 verses, we, we see lots of different characters who are all, in different ways, making plans for the first Easter, for Jesus' death. If you're looking into Christian things then, and you're wondering, why do my friends and family make a big deal of Easter or Good Friday, Jesus' death on a cross? Well, today is going to give the answer. If we've ever wondered why someone who seems so wise and powerful and kind and non-violent, someone like Jesus ended up being strung up as a criminal and enemy of the state, Well, today begins to give the answer. These questions of why did Jesus die? Who planned his death? Those are the questions we're focusing on. And as ever, Luke wants us to be certain. He wants us to be certain why Jesus needed to die. That Jesus planned to die. And actually, however long we've been a Christian, we never grow beyond the cross. We're never too mature to to stop remembering the cross. In fact, Christian maturity flows from understanding the cross. After all, the Lord gave us communion, the meal of bread and wine, to remember and proclaim his death until he returns. In our passage, we'll see him instituting it. It's been one of the most painful aspects, hasn't it, of lockdown as a church family, Full lockdown means we're not able to do that. We're hugely looking forward to that returning in the coming weeks and months. 
as we remember the Lord's death. But even today, we're beginning to prepare our hearts for Easter. And the first thing to notice as we head into chapter 22 is that there's more than one plan going on here. That's our first point, verses 1 to 13. It's clear that there's more than one actor in this historical record planning for Jesus' death. Let me just talk you through them. And verse 2, there are chief priests and scribes, that is the Jewish religious leadership. They're the kind of key players in Jerusalem's religious establishment. For a long time now, they've been hostile to Jesus. They want rid of him. Why? Well, by this point in Luke's gospel, we've seen them um, appalled by Jesus, the kind of people he hangs out with. I mean, bad people, sinners, tax collectors, prostitutes. They're appalled by Jesus. They're, they've been exposed by Jesus. Uh, his penetrating teaching is exposing their hypocrisy on multiple occasions, and they don't like that. And just recently in Jerusalem, um, chapters before this, we've seen them embarrassed by Jesus. They've tried to trap him, take him on theologically in the temple courts as everyone watches on, and they lost dramatically. Now the people are hanging on Jesus' every word. Now they've decided enough is enough. This guy is too much trouble. He's making us look too bad. We can't control him. We need rid of him. And so verse 2, they're planning and watching. They're looking for a chance to spring an ambush on him, away from the public eye, away from those crowds with whom he's so popular. That's the first plan. Secondly, verse 3, we have Satan Satan is a personal spiritual being opposed to God and all God's doing. Two weeks ago, we saw him in direct one-on-one battle with Jesus in the wilderness. He was trying to tempt Jesus to put himself first before his heavenly Father. And Satan failed there. Jesus stood. But the story in chapter 4 ended noting that Satan was going to wait for an opportunity, an opportune time, and here it is. Now's his moment. Now's a chance to properly get rid of this guy. Satan is planning. Thirdly, there's Judas. Judas is going to do the dirty work for Satan. Judas is one of Jesus' inner circle. He's one of the 12 disciples. And he is another genuine agent here. He's not resisting Satan like Jesus in the wilderness. He's collaborating with him. So verse 4, Judas went away, conferred with the chief priests and officers about how he might betray him to them. They were glad, agreed to give him some money, so he consented and sought an opportunity to betray him to them in the absence of a crowd. Three plans, three hostile agents, all converging on one conclusion. It's time to get rid of this guy. And let's do it quietly. Let's do it off the beaten track. Let's do it out of the public eye. Let's ambush him when he least expects it. That's why they needed a disciple on side, where there's no chance for anyone to come to his defense. So pause the passage there. Ask the question, why did Jesus die? How did he end up on a cross? Well, the answer is pretty straightforward, isn't it? He was trapped by a conspiracy. Powerful people... And powerful spiritual forces wanted rid of him using a disloyal friend to betray him. He was just a victim of this secret plot. He was caught in a trap they laid. He was ambushed. Except 
the impression we've got of Jesus all the way through Luke's gospel is that nothing is catching him by surprise. It's quite the opposite, actually. He seems to know what's going to happen next. In fact, if you just look through our, our passage, like in verse 15, he knows he's about to suffer. Uh, or verse 18, he knows his blood is going to be poured out. He knows he's going to die. In fact, in verse 21, he knows that he's about to be betrayed by one of his disciples. In verse 31, he knows that Satan is at work, even unseen. He, he, he knows. He knows it all. He knows about these threats. So, so it's not he's walking into an ambush, a kind of unforeseen trap. He knows exactly what's going on. In fact, more than that, he's following a plan of his own. Just to drive that point home, just listen to verses 7 to 13 as I read them again. And ask yourself, does Jesus sound like someone who's beginning to lose control of circumstances? Is he losing his grip on what's going on? Verse 7. Then came the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. So Jesus sent Peter and John saying, go and prepare the Passover for us that we may eat it. They said to him, where will you have us prepare it? He said to them, behold, when you've entered the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him into the house that he enters and tell the master of the house, the teacher says to you, where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished. Prepare it there. And they went and found it just as he had told them. And they prepared the Passover. Striking, isn't it? Even as his enemies are plotting in secret, while Jesus is making plans of his own. We're not actually told if these arrangements were prearranged supernaturally. Did an angel give a tip-off to the master of the house? Or, or possibly Jesus just popped in early um, to make arrangements beforehand. I mean, the timing of the water jar guy does seem quite remarkable. But, but either way, the point is, Jesus is making preparations of his own. It's not like his birth, where there was no room at the inn. He had to be in a barn around the back. No, here, Jesus is in total control. He's planning this meal, this Passover meal, this final meal, because he knows he's going to die. That should be enough to give us reason to pause and think, oh, hang on, maybe those plots of verses 1 to 6 are not the whole story. Satan and Judas and the leaders may have plans for Passover, but Jesus has his own plans, his own agenda for Easter. And you start to wonder, how long has Jesus been planning this? I mean, was it a few days beforehand that the message went to the master of the house? After all, finding a large room to host a big meal wasn't easy on Passover week in Jerusalem. I mean, it, if you can remember back to the, the pre-lockdown days, it was like trying to book a restaurant table on Mother's Day. But Jesus is determined to share this meal with his disciples before he dies, determined to explain what Passover was pointing to, to explain his death. So he makes plans. Except actually it, it wasn't just a few days where he's been making these plans. Jesus has been planning for this meal and his death all the way to Jerusalem. Luke's gospel has this long walk in the middle, a long trip to Jerusalem. All the way along, Jesus has been saying that he's heading into the city to suffer and die. 
In fact, all the way back in Luke 9, where it begins, he even name-checked the specific enemies we saw in verse 2. Let me read it. Luke 9, verse 22. The Son of Man, that's Jesus, must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. He already knew it. He already knew who they were. Weeks ago, perhaps months ago, naming them. So much for a secret plot. Jesus has his own plans for Easter. But actually, it's not even just months that Jesus has been planning for Passover and his death. Jesus wasn't just kind of exceptionally good at reading the political winds. He wasn't just working out like a good kind of analyst or or pundit, kind of what's coming around the corner next. Now, he was following a plan that had been in place for hundreds of years. In fact, thousands of years. We can know that for sure because the plan was written in the Old Testament part of the Bible, as uh, Scott said, hundreds of years before Jesus' birth. In fact, Jesus points that out again on the road to Jerusalem, Luke 18, verse 31. He, He takes aside his 12 disciples and says this, look, we're going up to Jerusalem and everything that's been written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished for he will be delivered over to the Gentiles and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him. So Jesus even knows he'll be handed over to Rome eventually. Jesus wasn't reading his fate in the ever-changing political winds. Unlike the rest of us, he did not have to sit in front of the TV on Tuesday to find out what's going to happen. He's not waiting for the government briefings to see what we can do at Easter No, he has a plan. And he got the plan from the Bible. It was there in the prophets. Passages like Isaiah 53, which we read earlier in the service. Jesus quotes from that at the end of the passage. He knew this was the plan, and it had been for centuries, since the beginning, in fact. Let's just step back. I think just a health warning, our heads might be about to spin here. It's worth stepping back and just realize the sheer scale of what's happening here. Nothing that happens in this passage is a a coincidence or an accident or an ambush. Nothing is outside of God's ultimate control and plan. Yes, there are genuine human agents on the ground. They are making genuine moral choices, and in this case, genuinely wicked choices. They are genuinely culpable for their actions as they plot to get rid of Jesus by any means necessary. But mind-blowingly, at the same time, above it all, the eternal God, Father, Son, and Spirit, has also been planning, planning for this moment, planning it will happen this way for centuries, from the beginning. That means that there's no coincidence where in the Jewish calendar this is all coming to a head. Did you notice that, verse 1? When the Feast of Unleavened Bread drew near, which is called the Passover. Or verse 7, then came the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. 
This Passover week, it was the great festival that looked back to the biggest rescue moment in the Old Testament. It was the night when there was no time to add yeast to the bread maker because the great escape was on. We're going tonight. Rescue is on. But in all the hurry, God provided very specific instructions for a lamb to be sacrificed so that his people could be saved could escape his own judgment, actually, on their idolatry, as well as their slavery in Egypt. As verse 7 puts it, this was the day that the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. Striking, that phrase, had to be, is literally, it was necessary. That's a phrase Luke regularly uses to say how Jesus' life and death had to fulfill the promises of the Old Testament. In Luke 24, Jesus will use that phrase about his own death. He says when his disciples are struggling to get their heads around it, foolish ones, slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things? Later, he says in that chapter, the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. It is written, the Christ must suffer and on the third day rise again. See, God was planning for Easter for millennia. In fact, it's not that Jesus knew about Passover and kind of tried to make it about his death. It's that God went through the strange effort of ensuring Israel sacrificed a lamb the day of their greatest rescue to show that one day Jesus would come as the substitute that we really need to get right with God. As evidence of that, even if you go back and read Exodus 12, there are so many instructions about how to remember this day. Every, every year, every generation, every family must remember, remember, remember that a lamb had to die for you to be safe. All because the Lord was planning Easter from the beginning. That's some serious planning. It is extraordinary. I mean, what does that mean for us? Well, Luke wants us to know for certain Jesus didn't die by accident. Absolutely not a surprise ambush in the dark. Absolutely not overwhelmed just by powerful people doing what they want. No, he voluntarily walked towards it. It was his plan. His good plan to rescue even as wicked people made awful plans around him. If you're not yet a Christian, what should you make of that? Well, let me say, it is worth giving some serious attention to Jesus Christ and particularly his death and resurrection. We're going to be looking at answers to why Jesus died all of this Easter series. When we face God, the key question will be, what did you do with my son Jesus? What did you make of his death? For those of us who are Christians, I think it's worth us just pausing to think here of how mind-blowing God's sovereign control here actually is. I do want to pause just for a moment to, to, to reflect on that, and partly because in Romans 9 and 10, we're seeing the same thing on Sunday evenings and in our small groups. 
Um, and there's some great questions coming. We're, we're glad for them. Keep, please keep them coming. And please tune in to that Zoom um, uh, Sunday week after the evening service um, for a Q&A. Um, one of the puzzles, though, that, that, sorry, one of the questions that's come up is this puzzle of how can you say that God's in total control, that what he chooses will happen, and still say at the same time that humans are responsible and accountable for their choices? Now, let's be honest, our minds do find it very difficult to get, to get around that in our heads. But let's also be clear, the Bible does say both things, not just once, but all the way through. We shouldn't be too thrown that we can't fully comprehend God. If God was small enough to fit neatly inside my brain, he would be an idol, a man-made creation constructed in our image. And there are plenty of watered-down gods to choose from. But actually, the Bible does say both these things. We can't downplay God's control in an attempt to reconcile human responsibility in our minds. Not least because it would make a nonsense of what the Bible says about the cross. As we read on in the coming months, it's very clear that all the characters in this ugly Easter story, the enemies, the disciples, all of them are culpable, responsible for their actions. They are making real choices, awful choices. We'll see that play out. But that does not mean God has let go of the wheel. He's not wondering where the car's going to crash next and hoping he can put it back together. He's not even a master chess player, kind of wondering what our next move is, and then he'll do something to compensate. No, he is the infinite sovereign. He is working a salvation plan even in and through the rebellion of his creatures. And what he's working is salvation. It is hard to get our heads around, isn't it? Strikingly, some of the biggest, hardest things the Bible says for us to understand, it says more than once and very early in the Bible, the first time. So Joseph in Genesis, who was left for dead by his brothers, he was sold into slavery in Egypt. He ended up saving their lives. And this is how he described what happened. It's exactly the same as the cross. Listen to this. This is Genesis 50. You meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. You meant evil, God meant good. Both were happening at the same time. And that is the picture of the cross. It's there at the start of the Bible. It's there at the center of the Bible. God is working his salvation plans even in and through the wicked choices of rebellious people. And it should actually give us real comfort and encouragement. Luke says we can be absolutely certain that God is in control and working good purposes. If you ever wonder whether God has lost control of life today in the 21st century, in a global pandemic, in a Scotland, increasingly at odds with what the Bible teaches, or just in the daily up and down of life, the kind of seeming chaos sometimes of our circumstances... Well, let me tell you that if God was in control this week, the Easter week of all weeks, still working out his good promise, purposes, well, he's fully in control today. 
fully in control of Scotland and the future of his gospel here. There's no one like him. As the psalm says, our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. And what does it please him to do? Save many through his own sacrifice as Jesus, the Passover lamb, prepares to die. On to our second point. This will be briefer. That was our biggest point by some margin. But on to our second point and on to the Passover meal where Jesus does explain that it points to his death. And remember how important this is, important enough to book a room. Um, and Jesus wants to eat this meal with his, with his disciples. Just look at verse 15. He said to them, I've earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it's fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Jesus knows there's not much time left. We've moved in our passage from the week of the festival to the day of the Passover, and now we're on the hour. Time is ticking. And Jesus uses his last minutes with his disciple to explain to them his death, his suffering. It's clear he sees himself as the suffering servant of Isaiah 53. He's going to quote that in verse 37 later. He's going to say that he'll be numbered with the transgressors. That is, the way he's going to suffer is as a criminal. He's going to be uh, executed as a criminal, die a, a criminal's death. He knows what's coming, but he wants this meal beforehand. Why? To explain, to explain the plan, to explain the heart of Easter. And from verse 19 onwards, he's going to do that as he points to his death in our place. But just before we get to verse 19, interesting, uniquely in Luke, verses 16 to 18 remind us repeatedly that Jesus is a king, a king who's about to be crowned. We'll see that as we go through um, Luke's passion narrative. Everyone says it, actually, whether it's his enemies mocking him, <laughs> call yourself a king, or the sign above his head, king of the Jews, or the thief repenting on the last day of his life on the cross. Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus the king is about to be crowned, but the way it's going to happen is as a suffering servant. The cross is the strangest way to treat a royal I know it's been a rocky week for the British monarchy, but even our culture wouldn't treat royalty like this. Do you know, the cross was so awful, it wasn't even allowed for citizens of Rome. But that is part of God's plan, that this righteous servant would be pierced for our transgressions, that our wrongdoing, our rebellion, would be laid on his shoulders. And that's what verse 19 is saying. As he took the bread and he'd given thanks, he broke it, gave it to them, saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. That broken bread representing Jesus' physical death on the cross. It is a body given for us, a death for us, a death in our place. Why? Why was that God's plan to save? 
Well, because of what we've been seeing in Romans. God is righteous, incorruptible. He's not going to turn a blind eye to sin. He's not going to lower his standards the way that we find it so easy to do when it comes to ourselves. No, he's perfectly righteous. Every abuse, every lie, every mistreatment of others, every awful tragedy we see on the news has to be paid for. He's rightly indignant at the creatures he's made. Justice does require a reckoning. And yet the extraordinary, amazing, wonderful plan of God, the the good news of the gospel, the heart of Christianity, is that Jesus came to take our place, to pay the price, to provide a way for us to be right with a holy, perfect God. As Isaiah 53 puts it, we all like sheep have gone astray, and then later, he was led like a lamb to the slaughter. He voluntarily took our place. And that's why, verse 20, Jesus describes this as a new covenant. He takes the cup and says, This cup is poured out for you as the new covenant in my blood. A covenant is a relationship bound by promise, like a marriage. Think of marriage. I mean, sadly, at the moment, everything else has been stripped out of marriage, the party, the the time to see friends and family, but the promise is still there, isn't it? Covenant, a relationship with a promise. And God does not break his promises. A new covenant is required because we couldn't play our parts. And in this new covenant... Jesus takes our place. He takes our place on the cross, the death we deserved. We take his place in the family, share his place in the family, righteous in God's sight. So, as we begin to draw to a close, we have this big question in our Easter series, what can save humanity? And here's the answer. Jesus' cross, Jesus' death. The heart of the answer actually is a who more than a what. Who can save humanity? Well, ultimately, not a brilliant medic or geneticist who manages to crack the secret of a universal coronavirus vaccine. Much as we would love one of those, and we pray for something like that, we'd be hugely thankful for that, wouldn't we? But respiratory disease is not the only way humans die. And actually, the biggest question of life is not how do I survive more years, but rather how do I get right with my maker, given we are going to meet him face to face. What can save humanity? Well, it's a who. Jesus. Jesus alone can save humanity. The king who would lay down his life as a servant to take our place. And we really do need that. I think some people hear that message and think, well, I understand what it's saying, but but I'm just not sure I need Jesus' death. I mean, who knows if there's even a God? And if there is a God up there, well, things are probably going to work out okay, aren't they, when we meet? I mean, he's fairly forgiving, and I've never hurt anyone, or at least I wasn't trying to when I did. I mean, I'm not that bad, certainly compared to others I know. 
I'm not as bad as the people on the news. I'm just not sure I need this kind of cross business. Happy to take my chances. I'm not interested in God. I doubt he'll be interested in me. And if he is, well, I can hold my own compared to those around. Jesus says that attitude is desperately, urgently wrong. As we saw last week, Jesus came to preach good news to people who are needy, who are blind, who are trapped. I think even as Christians, we can kind of drift into that attitude. As we listen through this Easter series over the next few weeks, maybe we're hoping, I hope hope people who don't believe tune in because they really need to hear about Easter. Um, But we've done all that before. Maybe we think, well, our lives aren't kind of a mess. Our our sin isn't so obvious. In fact, we serve a lot. We we give a lot. We try to fight sin. Surely that must go some way to, to credit in God's spiritual accounting. Luke wants us to be certain that every single one of us needs this rescue that Jesus is offering. We haven't got time to look at it in detail, but the rest of the passage, uh, I think, exposes that in the disciples. It's striking. Initially, um, in verse 21, uh, initially it seems like there might just be one bad apple in the bunch. Um, So Jesus predicts that that one of them is going to betray him. And they're all asking, verse 23, who could it be? Who could it be? Could it be me? Could I be the one? And you can understand how tense that would be. Surely they all thought, none of us is capable of such a failure. But then did you notice where the discussion moves next? By verse 24, suddenly a discussion about which of us could be guilty becomes who's the best, who's the greatest. Because actually when I compare myself to others, not only do I think I'm probably not the one rotten apple, it's easy to think I'm actually closer to the the cream of the crop or at least the right side of of, uh, average. In fact, Peter, the most enthusiastic Peter, he really thinks it can't be him. Uh, verse, um, verse 33, Jesus reminds him that even he will fall. Peter said to Jesus, Lord, I'm ready to go with you, both to prison and to death. Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times that you even know me. The reason why Jesus needs to give his body and blood for the people in that upper room is that they're not behaving as servants of God. They want to be kings, but aren't willing to serve. Even Peter, who wants to serve, wants to be loyal, actually fails under pressure. And who of us can say we've not done the same thing? We've not compared ourselves to other people We've not let Jesus down. There's not been a moment when we could have spoken up for Jesus and we didn't when the pressure was on in public. Which means it is an absolutely wonderful thing that the new covenant is sealed with his blood, secured by his death, anchored at that cross. It is absolutely wonderful news that our relationship with the living God is anchored on Easter. See, the only way any of us have a place in the kingdom is because the king was counted as a criminal. 
That's the shock of this passage. It's the shock of Easter, really. Uh, in, in verse 20, uh, 29 and 30, Jesus does say, I'm going to give my disciples this place in the kingdom. But how does it happen? Well, at the cost of himself. Remember verse 37, where the passage ends. He was numbered with the transgressors. It was because he was willing to be treated as a criminal that I could be treated as a king. As the thief on the cross will say, you're innocent, Jesus, so why are you here? And then, remember me as you come into your kingdom. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, our minds are spinning from your eternal, sovereign, wise and majestic planning that you had Easter in mind from the beginning. And we pray, Lord, you would help us to appreciate that that's what we need. Whether we we are just looking into Christian things or have been Christians for ages and tempted to get complacent, we pray you give us a certainty that only because of Jesus' death and entirely because of Jesus' death can we know you as our Father, as, uh, with no condemnation, as righteous in your sight. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.